projects have a start date and an end date. They have a set of requirements. And when you have reached the requirements and delivered, you're done. And then you've got something that's fairly static. In the product development world and in a startup, you're trying to get a, an MVP, a minimum viable product to market, because that's when you actually start learning. And so I like to think of data science development as really, we want to get that MVP and some value in the hands of people as quickly as we can. But that's actually the day when the evolution starts. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Do any examples come to mind in terms of showing the discrepancy between initially having a focus on building the engine and then describing the problem as getting from A to B and focusing on, on how the car drives? Do you have any, any examples um, that come to mind that you can share? So the one I'd probably go back to is at TrustCheck. So this was looking at how do we shut down identity fraud and we were trying to figure out how people could pretend to be somebody else during mm -hmm. the online transaction and divert the value of that transaction to themselves, right? Because there's no point in pretending to be Joe Bloggs, buying something with a stolen credit card from Joe Bloggs and having it delivered to Joe Bloggs. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't help. You actually yeah. need to plan something to get it to you. And we started looking for that one at the engine we were building was trying to detect when people weren't who they said they were. So looking at the individual transactions and what was happening. Um, what we then learned was that if fraudsters get away with identity fraud once, they come back and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. So what we actually needed to be looking to detect was not fraudulent transactions, but the fraudsters. Um, so how do you act? Because if you can, once they've been stopped, they go away really, really quickly. Um, so it was looking at the, what are the ways that, what are the are the, um, the patterns that turn up? Um, and then the question was, does this need to be a real-time in-transaction 0.2 of a second response time to actually get this to happen? Uh -huh. um, which is a really hard place to start, right? Yeah. Start up, you do not want to start with the hardest place. You go, okay, huge, great vision, starting point. Um, and what we ended up looking at was that there are gaps of time between a transaction and between goods being um, transmitted. So there's a window of time in there that you can work in. And there's also um, overnight batch processing. So a lot of the time you've actually got all night and you could run things in a batch. So that was sort of how we started to think about what were we capable of. And in this case, we kind of had the concept and we were trying to find the market for it. That works quite nicely if you're in a startup 
where you've got it, some, some IP around how to do something. Inside the corporate world, it's actually almost the other way around. You've got a problem and then you need to find um, the right solution for that problem and approach it from the other end and work backwards. Yeah. That is great. That is great. I um, I love that because, like, um, we sometimes get caught up with such a narrow focus of, of the problem and we're naturally problem solvers, so we want to dive in, but taking a, a moment, taking a step back and seeing the expansive nature of the limitations that, that we self-impose by focusing too narrowly. If we take a step back, we see that a lot of them don't necessarily apply or we can work around them. Um, and that gives us a much better space to create a better product. Um, that's awesome. And it gets, I, I quite often actually just, once we figure out where that true north is and what the actual problem is or what the workflow is, that we're looking at and who we're trying to solve the problem for, I'll actually stick that up on a big piece of paper on the wall because that becomes true north. Because when you start looking at data, all kinds of interesting things start coming to light. Oh, we've learned this, we've learned this, we've learned this, we've learned this. This is really interesting. I want to go down that pathway. Does it help solve that problem? Mm. And how does how does this particular solution as it's evolved still get back to the original challenge? Because it's really easy for it to become something else as you follow the data. And sometimes that's good, um, but sometimes that can end you up down a, a rabbit hole that doesn't actually get you closer to a solution that someone is going to pay for. Yeah, yeah, this is, ah, this is great. This is great. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sending this uh, recording to the product owners that, uh, that we work with, uh, the account managers that we work with. I think it is, it is a phenomenal um, education for, uh, for stakeholders of analytics and people that work uh, with, with the team, especially in those interfacing roles. Um, the, the salespeople, anyway, this is, this is fantastic. The data science is a team sport. Right. The same way that you build a car requires more than someone to design and build the engine. You need the rest of the car. You need an upholsterer. You need that diversity in the team to understand the different perspectives. Yeah. So, yeah, change management is big on that human side um, of things. The other bit at the other end of the spectrum, I guess, just to change topics completely, yeah. is how do you make it sustainable at the other end? Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of really smart people who grab some data and, in fact, a lot of consultants where there's some data and you do your cleansing and you sort it out and you come up with a solution and then you go, there you go, there's your algorithm. But that's not actually sustainable. So it's I've had a fascinating time at AGL really getting my head around MLOps and what does that team look like and what's what do you need to make a solution supportable, sustainable and safe? And that's about your data pipelines. It's about if you're actually trying to cause change so that the data that you're feeding into your model is going to change in its fundamental statistical characteristics. Does that invalidate your model? Yeah. Um, it's also going to drop your model performance because the thing that you're trying, if you're good at what you're doing and you get to the outcome you want, then the problem you're trying to solve is going to go away. Uh -huh. So then do you keep it there as a as a in-place solution just in case it pops up again, 
Or is there going to be now the next thing that's on the list that was a problem in that area is now going to bubble up and you now want to start evolving your model to um, handle that sort of case as well and, and change the output slightly. So it's dynamic management, not static management, which mm -hmm. is most other IT applications are actually dealing with historical data. And once it's there, it's there. Mm -hmm. Data science is trying to change the future. And that means we need to rise the wave of change that we are trying to bring about if we're successful. That is so perfectly put. <laughs> um, I, I love it. I love it. Yes. And, and um, I think in the um, productionizing of models, like it's, it's so important to be able to understand the data that's being fed into the model in production. Is it similar or different to, um, to what we had during the, during the training? And then how's the, um, the performance of the, the model and the data uh, changing over time? At one point, so we need to intervene. Um, but then you're taking it further to say this might this problem might go away as a result of the model itself, and there's there's going to be a new a different world as a result of this model being in in place. Um, do you have do you have any examples that you can share about how that um, how that happens or or how that comes to life? So there was a lovely line at the Advancing AI conference the other week that's, that stuck with me in this space, and that is that data science models fail silently. And that's the bit around this is, that's really interesting is you can turn into garbage in, garbage out, and it will still happily keep working. The model will keep running. You will keep um, producing outputs, but those outputs are no longer meaning what you wanted them to mean. So you need to think about um, both your feedback loop about how do you know whether you're right or not? And often in a business that comes from a completely different set of data from a different part of the business that you may or may not have access to get your hands on and sometimes can be months. Yeah. Back in yeah. that broad case, we were looking at, at there were up to six months for a, a consumer to file a complaint that, that their credit card had been misused. And you've got to wait for all of that to come back to get your feedback loop. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of other things that can happen about garbage in, garbage out. Um, if you're relying on input from a large data set, um, I've actually had an example where those that data set was um, from a series of distributed devices. Mm -hmm. Over time, the devices had stopped working or the people who owned them had moved house or they'd been unplugged. But for whatever reason, um, the model was running on about 5% of the input information that it had been originally tuned to. And depending on which 95% has gone, you suddenly got a huge opportunity for bias. You still got valid data coming down the pipeline because of the way it all gets processed. But is it really as meaningful as it needs to be? And are you still getting the sort of accuracy that you need from that model? Great. Great. Ah, this is, yeah. This is so good. This is great. And um, in in the past, when in my teams, we've had we spent a lot of time with, particularly with software engineers that are working with us, um, telling them that the if the code doesn't change, we can still have a lot of changes <clears throat> that are happening, um, and that that is kind of like a novel novel bridge uh, bridge to to cross for them. Uh, that yeah, it's it's. The code can be static, but if the, if the data changes, then um, yeah, it can go. It can all go haywire. Yeah, um, if you've got a, a flame burning through a piece of rope, the flame doesn't need to change. <laughs> the strength of the rope will. 
<laughs> That's great. Um, so yeah, I, I love your focus on on looking at uh, data science products, and um, and uh, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about how, which we've covered parts of it in the discussion, but I wanted to call it out. That that's quite data science products is quite different from data science projects, and that the majority of people, um, including myself, like we think of data science almost as as projects by by default. Um, what do you think about the the difference between the two, and and how should we think about it? So, thank you, Philippe. You're going to get let me get on my hobby horse and talk about this. Um, look, look, it's it's something that. Um, Glenn Ryman back at AGL and I used to talk about, in fact, and, and Joey Jura as well, that we used to talk about this quite a lot. Projects have a start date and an end date. They have a set of requirements, and when you have reached the requirements and delivered, you're done, and then you've got something that's fairly static. In the product development world and in a startup, you're trying to get a, an MVP, a minimum viable product to market, because that's when you actually start learning. And so I like to think of data science development as really we want to get that MVP and some value in the hands of people as quickly as we can. But that's actually the day when the evolution starts because now there's something that's there. It's It's got to be managed and all of the normal IT management tools around support need to be there that it, it stays up and that the data pipelines are in place. But we're trying to cause change. So just like as you may have a product, and I'm just trying to think of, of an analogy. If I have a product that is going to tell me the time. In fact, I have a, a product that's going to set off an alarm at six o'clock in the morning. Right. The next thing I want is, okay, now I'm getting up at six o'clock in the morning. I don't want to get up at six o'clock on a Sunday. I want to be able to change the time to do different things at weekends. Okay, so you add that functionality in, that's a second feature in your product. And so these are product features as opposed to data science features, which is another one of those gorgeous potential miscommunications you can have between product teams and data science teams is they both have features and they're different things. But now I've got a feature that will set me up at six o'clock on weekdays. Mm. Oh, I've changed jobs. I now don't need to get up until 6.30 on weekdays. I want to be able to change that time. I want to have a different thing at weekends. I would like to have public holidays. I'd like it to read the calendar and know when it's Good Friday so that my alarm doesn't go off at 6 o'clock on Good Friday as it did this year. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the evolution of needs that, and again, that piece around when you're dealing with something you haven't had before, you don't understand what you need until you see it in action. And then you start working out how you can use it for advantage and it builds. So in, when you're bringing a new product to market, you'll have the development team that does the initial work of getting an MVP out there. And then there's quite often a combined support team and a long-running long product development team. And they're about what are the next things that we can do that might increase the number of customers for the product or increase what customers are willing to pay for the product or just keep the existing customers now that we've got them. You actually can't stop with just it does a thing because it, it does a thing. It, it, it's not enough anymore. Our expectations are evolving. And as we understand what's possible, we want more. We always want more. And, and that's where product thinking really comes to life. And then at the end of the day, at some point, the problem might have gone away um, 
or we don't need that solution anymore. So how do you turn it off? And that's the other interesting, a product life cycle has a development phase, it has an operational phase, it has a mature phase, and it actually has an end of life phase. And all of that is part of the overall thinking about something as a product. And I don't know too many data scientists think about when they're writing a new algorithm, where it's going to meet the end of life, what the conditions are going to be that would um, that would designate that it has reached end of life or what you're going to do about it at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a different way, I guess, of thinking about things again. And it's back to that question of why would somebody pay money for what you're doing and what do they need and, and those needs change. And what I love about your approach is that you're de-risking that future early. So you're early on in the in the piece, you're, you, you have a long-term focus and you're trying to understand, is somebody going to pay for it? Is this going to live a long time? Is this going to end at some point? Um, and having, having that longer-term perspective, but with an urgency to find out the answers quickly um, creates a... Uh, the, the space for a really successful product to be able to to be developed. And, and the joy about it, about it is, Philippe, that you can be wrong. Mm. But as it evolves, you learn. And so your definition of what an end of product life looks like no. might be different, but because you have an idea of what you think it's going to look like, that gives you a hypothesis to test. And so it gives you a way of working out when something's changed and that your thinking needs to change. So, again, it gets back to this. It's got to be okay to be wrong. And having something that's out there that you can bounce off and look at and touch and feel and taste um, helps in terms of when it changes, you can see something that's changed versus I haven't actually thought about this yet and I'll deal with it later when I need to. Yeah, yeah, that is great. That is great. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, so some of the things that I was hoping to to cover uh, in our conversation is um, – what you're passionate about in the space and what, what are you frustrated about in the, in the space? Um, so first, tell me if we've, um, if we've covered the, the first question um, and, or if there's something else that we should, that we should discuss in, in that first item. No, look, I think we've covered off most of, of the passion, that the three passions I've really got. One is around a product framework and a product and innovation framework. The second is around MLOps at the other end of making sure things are sustainable. And the third is really around diversity and inclusion and mm-hmm. the different skills as part of the team. And the fact that they're not like you is what actually gives them value. Um, so I try to understand what the world looks like through different people's eyes and what's the piece that, that different people bring to the table. Um, and then making sure that you listen to them. The inclusion part is really important. If you're going mm-hmm. to go to diversity and have that range of skill set, there is nothing worse than those people not feeling listened to because nobody else is like them. And again, that gets back to that psychological safety of if you're the only person that can see this, you actually have a duty to call it out and we need you to do that because it's a perspective we don't have from the other set of life experiences that we've got. Um, where, do you, where, do you think, um, where do you think people fall down or can fall down in, in the inclusion component? Oh, we like people that are like us. Right, extroverts like extroverts, introverts like introverts. Um, if we find people who sort of echo our own life view, we understand it. So there's less brain processing power involved in agreeing with it. If somebody's putting forward an idea 
and you don't understand it and you don't know where it's come from and you don't know why it's important, mm. that requires a whole lot more cognitive thinking um, and a whole lot more humility about, well, maybe my worldview isn't the only one and maybe mm. this may have some value and that the challenge here is me, not the idea. Okay, so let's sit down and let's understand it and let's unpack that and look at, at what it means and why it's important. But that takes time, it takes effort, and it takes sometimes a little bit of challenge on your own self-perception. Mm. Generally not very comfortable in something that we often avoid. Um, and yet the power that can come out of embracing that set of differences is awesome. But there's a miscommunication potential, there's a misunderstanding potential, there's a misidentity about does it matter and why does it matter and what are we going to do about it? Because if it is a real problem, it might be one I don't actually know how to solve. Mm. Um, I don't. Do I really want to open that can of worms? And the answer is yes, because if I don't, then it's going to come back and bite me, but I don't really want to have to do the work to understand it to be able to solve it when I don't. Um, so I think that's that sort of why inclusion can be a challenge is that there's a natural group that come forward that get listened to that self-reinforce. Mm -hmm. And it's pulling in the people outside of that self-reinforcing group who have, who have the little drops of gold that you need to bring to the table and then need to make sure get listened to. Well, I was very keen to ask you about this because I think this is something that you do really, really well. And I, I have... Um, which which is is very noticeable, and uh, I've noticed that, um, well, even within myself, that sometimes I am worried about the the complexities that that the differences will will in um, or can create, and that and I and I see myself sometimes and other people like stopping the the inclusion part, not 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 um, with bad intentions behind it, but. Um, sometimes feeling like too uh, pressured for, for time or for outcomes and sometimes thinking, oh, if I do this and I, and I open Pandora's box, it's going to take longer or end up being more complex. So we have more, um, uh, yeah, more, more complex uh, working environment as a, as a result. Uh, but at least in, in the times that I've, that I've taken that step, um, the outcome overall has been much, much, much better. And, and as a leader, I think that's just somewhere where you need to be able to apply triage. Is it tactical and I need to pay attention to this right now? Is this something strategic and good to know? Mm. Let's unpack that at another time. And this is actually going to be a three-month or a six-month journey, but we can actually keep, do, do we need it for this to be successful and is it a showstopper? Yeah. Um, yeah. Either way, I've learned something new. Um, the team's been exposed to some new ideas. Somebody else has also had a really affirming experience that that their worldview has been shown to have value. Mm. And they're more likely to speak up next time. Ah, that's yeah. That's really that's really really good. That's really good. Um, yeah, I I work at a at a like newish company, like just over two years old, and. Uh, uh, the CEO of the company was very deliberate about the type of culture that um, that he wanted to create. It's one that I like very much agree with uh, to a very large extent, and um, and particularly over the the past few months, I noticed that there's a lot of people that don't that that doesn't that our approach doesn't naturally work for them, and I started to notice some some friction. Um, spoke to them about it and, and found the, the areas that were 
um, particularly difficult uh, for them. Um, and, and in some cases, there was people where that, that had um, um, some, some uh, mental health um, support that they needed or, or diagnosis, and especially coming, coming out of COVID. Um, and it was actually just last week uh, that I was speaking to the CEO about it to say, like, these are some things that, you know, it's, it's quite difficult for some people to, uh, to deal with in their day-to-day work. And there's some things that we have as, like, core values and, and or ways that we run our operations. Uh, so let's discuss about how to inc- and, um, include some diversity in our approaches so people are more comfortable um, and are still obviously being able to do, do their job, but then they'll be able to do their job even better. Um, so they're, they're, they're tough conversations uh, to, to go into. As you said, sometimes they need um, a longer time window and it's so important to, to have them. And um, for, for people like me that sometimes feel too pressure, um, that they're being too pressured by the time or the outcomes and getting to the goal, like it's important to keep in mind that by creating the space to explore these things, the outcome in the end usually ends up being way, way better than what you'd get by being time pressure. So, so yeah, absolutely right, Philippe. And, and the thing I tell myself around those when they happen is it means that the fact that somebody was willing to bring that up means you successfully created psychological safety because they feel they can bring it up and then they trust that you will actually do something about it. I tell myself that a lot, but it's a really scary one. And I'm looking at it going, oh, what am I going to do about this? But yeah. I'm going to learn something um, and we as a team are going to be stronger as a result of it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Really, really good. Thank you. Um, so then I wanted to ask you if um, if you've got some time. Are you okay for time? I'm absolutely okay for time. Yep. Awesome. So I was keen to ask you about your um, frustrations uh, in, in our market, in our space, in our industry, things you think uh, could be better, should be better, uh, any any. Anything that comes to mind um, in that space? Oh, where do I start? <laughs> I think one of my big frustrations is that the success rate of machine learning and getting it into operations is so low. Yes. I think that's a still that 80 to 90% of data science slash machine learning initiatives don't ever make it to production. And I think a bunch of the reasons we've talked about um, are part of the driver behind it, but it's also that because people can't get their head around it, so they're not quite sure what they're asking for, so they don't know what they need until they see that it's not actually what they thought it might be. Um, so there, there's the frustration around how do we actually reliably get new products to market and maybe around maybe it follows the innovation space where a lot of things don't. Um, in in startups, you look at portfolio risk, right? And out of 10 new companies, three will fail. Three might do okay. Three will do quite well, and one of them will knock it out of the park, and that absolutely justifies the whole investment in the whole portfolio. You guess which one. Um, but we don't offer, we don't sometimes take that approach to um, to machine learning either and, and the sort of initiative, and I won't call them projects, they're initiatives, um, and the sort of products that we're looking to bring to life. So that's that's one of them is why is that success rate so low? Um, 
and I'm pleased to see, and I think the other thing that frustrates me is having to get all the data engineering sorted out first. Um, if you want to go in and start and do some data science, well, you've got to sort out your data governance. You've got to sort out your data engineering, what your pipelines look like. If you're still on-prem, then you actually probably want to make the jump to the cloud before you do too much else. Um, it's the IT systems that sit behind it and the IT and data get talked about often as being part of the same thing and they're fundamentally not. Um, so... IT is very much about information technology. Data science is very much about information science. And the technology versus the science, to me, are quite different. Um, and I get a little frustrated at times that go, oh, oh, you're in data science, you're in IT. You're an IT professional. I go, no, I'm not an IT professional. Um, and if you want me to be looking at a role that does data and analytics, there are people that do do that. But there's also people that do analytics and business strategy. And that's probably the camp that I come from, which is the innovation side, product development side, plus all of the deep tech that sits behind it. Mm. But it's not IT. Um, the architecture's there and you work with people who know how to do that. Um, but the thinking is different. The scientific method is different. The developing You don't develop hypotheses and test them in IT. You, you just don't. It's a different way of approaching things. And yet in data science, it's absolutely fundamental to what we do. Um, so I think that overlap frustrates me quite a bit. And I think the, the other thing that, that frustrates me a little is some of the executive views that I want to do data science because it's sexy and it's going to save me millions of dollars and change my business. And they assume it's really simple. Um, we have a bias as human beings to simplify what we don't understand or assume that what we don't understand is, is how hard can it be, right? Worst line in the world, how hard can it be? Yeah. Uh, yes. And, oh, we just get one of the IT guys to do it or we just pull in somebody from the other side of the business to do it. But there is a profession here. There is a set of skills there is a lot around UX. There is a lot around how do you process information, how do you present information, how do you provide actionable information that's not IT? Hmm. So for me, that, that's probably a big one um, because people make some really interesting assumptions around my background um, based on the fact that I work in analytics and data science um, and I'm a slightly different beast. But a, um, an approach uh, and, and uh, a viewpoint and uh, yeah, perspective and a voice that is so necessary in the industry. Um, so I'm It gets back so... to that diversity piece, right? Sorry? It's back to that diversity piece. You need different viewpoints. You do need different viewpoints and and, and your perspective just um, creates so much so much value for, for the system as a whole. And it's somewhere, it's something that we're not uh, focusing on enough and not, we're not prioritizing. We're not talking about it enough. Um, and that's why uh, I'm so glad that we had this this time, uh, this time together today to to explore and discuss. And I think um, the the audience is going to get so much value from from this discussion. As and as I said, I'm going to be sharing it internally at work as well because um, this is this is uh, a lot of what at least I I think uh, that that we should be discussing and focusing on more and more. Fingers crossed. I guess I come from a world where you find your customer and get it right or you die. Um, and when you're looking at corporate analytics, um, 
that immediacy of risk is not there to the same extent and it just mm-hmm. leads to a different way of approaching things. Yes, yes, exactly. Ah, that is great. That is a fantastic note to end on, Sarah. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, sharing your journey, your passion, your perspectives, uh, your learnings, your frustrations. It is gold. It is gold. So thank you so much for sharing all that today. Yeah, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come and talk about it. Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.